welcome to the Coaching Uncovered podcast. My name is Brent Davis and this is my coaching podcast. This is where I get to talk to coaches about coaching, but today we're doing a slightly different version of the show. Um, I'm keen to drop uh, a podcast episode every week. So in the weeks where I'm not talking to a coach specifically, I'm going to drag my first guest back, um, Scotty, to come and talk to me just about general coaching topics. So we're going to come uh, at you with some topics that we've come across in our own research or our own readings. Um, and also from the f- Facebook group that Scotty runs as well. We're going to talk about just different topics that come up. So hopefully you'll get some enjoyment out of these shows. And thank you for coming in, Scotty, and talking to us. Thank you for having me back, mate. I'm a little bit surprised, but let's, uh, yeah, let's make this a regular feature. <laughs> no, it, it'll be good. And your your um, your podcast is still close to the top of the table with regards to downloads. You did get beaten a bit by Richard Woodhouse, but that kind of speaks for itself. Well, I think if, if I you know can nail out maybe 50 or so podcasts, they'll never catch me. That's it. Just I think with, that's with aggregate. <laughs> yeah. we'll, just, we'll just keep adding to the total and it'll, be, it'll all be fine. <laughs> so the topic I was keen to talk about today was um, checking up on your athletes and their training, okay? So just being sure that they're doing the right things at the right time. How do we, how do we keep an eye on what they're doing? Um, and I was going to start off with a little bit of a story about how I came about this understanding of it uh, from a playing perspective as a, as a player early on and then also from my, my coaching perspective. But um, So I grew up in, in country um, country. In, New South Wales in Australia and back when I was playing we're talking late 80s early 90s I've just completely aged myself then but that's fine um, and it was all about the volume of training you did how many golf balls you hit how many holes you how many holes you played how long did you spend on the practice fairway and that was how it was seen to be training properly so to speak in its speech marks so it was no talk about the type of practice you were doing. It was just about grinding it out and hitting lots of golf balls. Um, so I did that until probably until I started my traineeship. It was all about how many golf balls I hit. And then during my traineeship, I went to a seminar run by a, a Perth pro called David Milne, and he kind of introduced me to the concepts of block practice versus random practice. And um, so he was talking about different types of practice for different types of training. Um, and that's when I sort of tweaked my own training where I was hitting different types of shots to different targets, using different clubs, using pre-shot routines. So the volume of training, so to speak, with the, the balls that I was hitting probably dropped, but the intensity of training um, increased. So I was hitting more more serious shots, if that makes sense. Um, and then from there, I got a... a greater understanding again from by doing my postgraduate study. So doing my postgraduate study, um, I started to understand that golfers and sports people could actually train too hard. So we needed to keep an eye on what they were actually doing. So we needed to, to track what they were doing in their training and how they were going about it and what their physical uh, responses were to the training that I was prescribing them um so i'm going to talk about the first few ways that i did that i'm sure you'll pick holes in and and have a good giggle at my um stone age techniques but basically um i built a spreadsheet for an assignment when i was doing one of my postgrad studies and inside of that spreadsheet i had things on there that i was tracking such as uh 
how they felt during training, whether they felt tired, whether they felt easy, whether they felt hard, their resting heart rate first thing in the morning, their body weight. Um, that was the type of thing that I was keeping on that spreadsheet. And that gave me a bit of a basic understanding because um, in that postgrad study, I came across the fact that a raised resting heart rate was kind of one of the first trends of someone who was training too hard. And that was what I was, thought I would track. And um, it was an interesting concept from, um, from a golf point of view. And I'm sure you're going to tell me that this thing's been around for, for hundreds of years in the in the physical training space. But um, feel free now, Scotty, to pick holes in my, my Stone Age um, techniques. Well, let's go from there. I would never, I would never pick on a golf coach who wants to use more sports science stuff. So you know, like uh, I, I just think actually your timeline was probably ahead of the curve um, in relation to certainly in relation to golf, um, and that you know obviously probably the reason that golf may have slipped behind a little bit with this sort of stuff is purely based on the fact that it's less of a physiological based sport. It's more of a a skill-based sport, I guess. Now, there's skill in all sports, but, um, you know, realistically, your heart rate doesn't get up that much in the sport of golf unless you're over a short putt that means something to you. Um, so, so realistically, there's, there's probably sort of common sense reasons as to why a lot of the, the um, athlete monitoring techniques that have come from different sports haven't been picked up by golf um, until more recently. Um and uh, so, you know, I actually think what you did was really good. And just going back to Dave Milne, who I've done a bit of work with over the years and respect a lot, um, with the, the block versus random practice. And it's really interesting to me from the physical space that you viewed the random practice where you're going through your full pre-shot routine and engaging with the target a bit more perhaps or trying to sort of mimic competition scenarios, I'm, I'm guessing. Yep. Um, you would look at that as more intense, um, certainly from a mental perspective. But, um, you know, realistically, if I was looking at you from a physical perspective and, you know, what's more likely to injure you, it's going to be the block practice where you're raking balls in and, you know, your shots per minute might be as many as three per minute um, versus the other one might be down to, say, maybe one per minute. Um, so I kind of look at that and think, uh, you know, I would almost say that block practice maybe more intense than the random or the competition-based practice. But, um, but maybe from a you know, overall psychology point of view, you might feel more drained after the, the competition stuff. So that, that in itself is interesting. Yeah, that's, that's that's probably where I was coming from because if it, obviously it's it's a it's a heavy cyclone if you're full concentration, full pre-shot routine on every shot, and then dealing mm. with where that shot goes, and um, that's probably where I was coming from with with uh, the intensity scale. And if I'm checking my athletes, that's what I'm generally counting intensity as, as opposed to what mm. you, you might class intensity as how hard they're actually working. Yeah, and we're obviously going to get further into the weeds as we go through. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of the intensity measurements that we use are based on heart rate. Now, if you're mentally engaging with something and really concentrate, it will actually bump your heart rate up. Um, so just because something is uh, mechanically more challenging to your body, like, you know, hitting three drivers per minute, um, you know, overall, if we're looking at um, your whole system fatigue, the other one may actually end up being a bit higher from an intensity point of view. 
I've, I've seen um, some skill act coach, uh, coaches talk about getting engulfed, getting people's heart rate up prior to hitting a shot to simulate that on course pressure type situation. So yeah, yeah, um, they'll actually yeah. get them to do some physical activity and then come in and step in and hit the shot. And that's um, that's that's pretty cool as well. Yeah, yeah. Anything you can do to, to mimic it. So now I, I think um, I think the fact that um, that you were trying to use tools um, and sort of um, you know bring it into your own experience with, is a good thing. Um, and resting heart rate is something that still holds up really well, and it's something that I was doing even as a kid when I was training for my running. I'd be using my resting heart rate first thing in the morning and. Um, if it ever jumped up by more than about 10%, that was a sign that something was afoot. Either I was about to get sick or I was a little bit overtrained um, and I needed to take a day off. So so that sort of, um, yeah, that, that all, I think you did a great job, mate. But luckily, <laughs> it's getting easier and easier to do a good job of this stuff. Um, and I think that's possibly why it's growing exponentially over the last probably three to five years is it's getting easier to do it well and get that benefit that we've always known was there from a sports science point of view but um you know i think golfers themselves now are just are experiencing the benefit themselves now so uh, the popularity is growing because it's better and we'll certainly cover off on that wearable tech because there's certainly plenty of options out there um but um i used to find Probably the first time I got to apply this stuff in a full-time situation was in Taiwan. So mm. uh, I was coaching over there and I had the uh, the squad of players that I was, I was coaching over there and getting them to fill in the spreadsheet is, uh, tied in with a training log as well. So they fill in what type of practice they were doing, how often they were doing it for, how many balls they were hitting and stuff like that and getting them to complete the um, – monitoring sheet as well i found as a real challenge um mm. to get my golfers to buy into it so um how do you deal with that from your own personal perspective how do you deal with that trying to get the players to um do that stuff if they uh, are doing it mate, you, yeah look you just whip them until they don't like you um and then they really <laughs> stop um yeah. <laughs> No, look, it's obviously, it's been one of the challenges. You know, I know I've seen uh, many a golfer try and duck and weave and dodge doing their on-course stats, um, which is obviously vital information to the coach. Um, From my perspective, I've had um, groups of athletes and individual athletes recording their training, as you've said, onto, you know, Excel spreadsheets that we've put into, you know, back in the day, put into Dropbox and things like that so I could share it and see it sort of as as real-time as possible. Um, there, there are players who, uh, I guess if you, if they're really into training, then for them to record a little bit of data is not, not too hard. In 2014, I based my whole honours thesis on this very predicament, which was, um, you know, what should we use in golf? And then, and then what's the most likely way that we'll succeed in using it? So I did a two stage study. Uh, the first stage was asking, we got 21 experts from all different, um, Sort of, uh, so some coaches, some sports scientists, some strength and conditioning coaches uh, who had all worked in the golf industry for a long time. And I presented them with 36 items that are typically used in a lot of sports, some of which we've already mentioned. Put it to the panel and basically if they agreed, ran about 80% or more, agreed that yes, that was important or very important, it was in. So 21 of those 36 items survived the cut and they went in. 
I then made a spreadsheet that um, that uh, players could then use for a 28 day period. And I got 13 tour players and they recorded all of that information. And then at the end of it, uh, we worked out how good it was. And they said, yep, yeah, it was all good information. We liked it, thank you very much. But we need to make sure that it's less than five minutes a day to do this crap because it's kind of annoying. Um, and um, interestingly, I'd asked the, the 21 experts what they thought was acceptable and they said 10 minutes. So experts say 10 minutes, the athletes say five, not surprising. <laughs> um, and, you know, roughly, so basically I, I was looking at that point thinking, well, we're going to have to cut those 21 items down. It's great that they're all important and we really like them, but they don't fit into the five minutes a day. Nowadays they do. Nowadays, the automatic capture of um, of most of these devices means that you can spend your five minutes a day that you spend is looking at pretty graphs that basically tell you what to do. Um, and, you know, generally pretty interesting. So we've come a long way and some of the earlier issues that we had, I, I don't think, I think most of them might be a problem in the future, to be honest. No, that's, that sounds pretty cool. But I think I found that I got the players to get into it when they saw something change. So... Mm. The, to tell you a story about uh, four of the the female players I had coaching in Taiwan, I was coaching in Taiwan. I had huge problems with them um, being able to hydrate properly on the golf course, and I couldn't get them to drink anywhere near the amount of fluid that they needed to. And I was talking ballpark figures back then of like six hundred mils every forty five minutes, so every two or three holes, which was extremely down on what we, we, we see now, what players should be drinking. But um, I couldn't convince them. So the idea was I put them on the scales prior to them teeing off and then I put them on the scales after they came back in. Mm. And we saw, a, obviously, you saw a pretty significant change in body weight in those players. Mm. Um, some of them two and a half, three kilos. So we saw a, a pretty, pretty serious drop in hydration. Um, but the, the one player that I had the biggest problem with didn't drop much at all. So mm. she was saying, "I'm fine, I'm fine." But I think it was uh, the fact that she was already dehydrated played a pretty significant role in the fact that she didn't drop much weight. So once I got the athletes or the golfers to get that understanding and say, okay, well, his stuff here is actually going to help me as a player. So if I'm seeing um, something change in that player, which can start a conversation, but if the, if the, if the golfer is actually seeing that feedback coming and improve coaching and improve performance. That was a pretty good uh, tool for to getting them to to engage in, in that type of um, that type mm. of uh, stats keeping. I, I think the player absolutely has to experience the benefit themselves. They really need to um, experience that to, to make it sort of worthwhile to them. Um, we know from the scientific point of view that you only need to lose one percent body mass in uh, in your hydration before it affects your ability to detect differences in texture, distance perception. You even lose distance off your approach irons. We know this in golf. There's a couple of good studies done on it. Um, 2% is going to have a, a big impact. And what you talked about before is more like 5%. So God knows what they're experiencing. Um, so we we know it absolutely is important. Now, as I mentioned, the, the automation of a lot of this stuff now, hydration and scales are still one thing that doesn't, uh, show up in any of these wearable technologies. So, um, and if they were to sort of try and do it, it'd be a fair 
you know, I don't I don't think it's accurate enough yet. Put it that way. You'd have to do that one properly. Um, we've done it. We've done a hydration study on some players, as you know, at uh, at the PGA, and we found that um, same similar to your experience, a couple of them were chronically dehydrated to begin with. You can tell that by the concentration of their the urine, um, and everyone basically needs a, an individualized plan ideally, but you need to put some electrolytes in there. Um, and yeah, uh, it, it's um, it's definitely an important area and something that um, you can easily measure with scale. So should be done, yeah. definitely. Yeah, for sure. And a, a problem I had in Taiwan as well was I, I finally got the golfers to engage in that situation. Then I had to fight the same fight with the Golf Association. They couldn't quite see the the value of me having a, a golfer taking time off, so to speak, if they were overtraining and having that bit of a break. They couldn't um, – mm. they didn't quite see that benefit and that was a challenge as well. Yeah, yeah. Look, any any time you're introducing anything new to a whole industry, um, <laughs> you're going to have to number one keep smiling and keep everyone happy, uh, and number two, you know, sort of almost off the ropes, um, create an, an environment where you can educate them, which is it's not always that easy to do when they haven't asked you in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, they they they. Uh, when I was hired to do the actual training for the for the golf association, I was brought in because I had those post grad qualifications, and they were after the more scientific yeah types of training. But um, yeah, we still had our had our problems over the over the journey. Yeah, but it's re- it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I've sort of found myself over the the last twenty years of being involved um, in a similar capacity in my, in my industry. I guess is that. Um, it's like every five years, you know, there's a bit of a change and something that I could not convince people of five years later, they're asking you for it. Um, and then, you know, five years later, everyone's doing it. And so, you know, I guess you just kind of pick and choose your, your battles and, um, you know, which horse to bet on at which time. And then gradually, gradually it gets there in the end. If it's good, the athletes will want it. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I used to, I found that them, and this was based on them going off and training by themselves and sending me their their forms via email. Um, they could take a bit more ownership of their of, of their training. So as opposed mm. to having the coach standing over them saying, "Do this, do this, do this," um, they could take a bit more ownership of some of these these data points and start to see when these things could be could be tweaked or changed based on what they were sending me which was pretty cool yeah absolutely and i think that's going to be well that's the big shift that we're seeing right now with wearable technologies is that um, the interfaces are so good the phone apps are so good that they are now telling the athlete what they should and shouldn't do and and why and the athlete themselves is understanding it and no one had to tell them, you know, essentially their, their, their phone's telling them what to do, which it does in every other area of their life. So why, why not with sports science? And Very that means that, you know, we as the coaches can get on with what we want to do. You know, if my, if my athletes are better uh, recovered uh, and are doing a better job with their sleep, their recovery, you know, maybe their nutrition and hydration, something they start to look at if they can't budge the numbers properly, and they're doing a better job. Well, it means that they will respond better to my training, and um, we have less ro- roadblocks and, and um, barriers and hurdles. So, and I always found that getting that spreadsheet from the from the players was a great conversation starter. So, mm. 
if you haven't. And over there, obviously, I was dealing with um, the the players speaking Chinese, and my Chinese skills are very, very small. So uh, I had some challenges there. But just them sending me that information every week gave me a chance to start conversations with those players. So if they were having problems or if they felt tired or they were having some issues with, with their sleep or all sorts of things like that, I could – I could start that conversation, and they could mm. feel that they were still getting coaching from me, which was a which was a powerful tool as a coach. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, you know, there's there's two. I've I've always looked at with athlete monitoring. There's two main benefits that we get out of it. Our, our ultimate holy grail, where we'd like to be, is data led decisions. So we're making decisions for individuals about their training and their recovery based on data rather than just what I think, what I feel, or what they want to do today, which is obviously not probably, it's less likely to be optimal. Um, so, but, you know, we don't always get there. But even if we don't get there, um, that conversation starter, to me, there's enough value in that, um, either between you and the player or between the service providers that actually help the player. So, an example of that more recently for me, I'm training a couple of sailors to go to the Tokyo Olympics whenever that is. <laughs> so we just we just keep training. Just Two keep training. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm sort of, I was coming into, I've worked with these guys for a while, but I hadn't worked with the team so much. So I hadn't worked with the, the coach and the sports scientist that they have involved there. And um, there's a dietitian, there's a physio. And we've had a lot of sort of back and forth. We use a... a um, a website called Slack channel, which is where we basically all post information up there and it's, everyone can see it and we can all comment on it and we can see who's seen it and who hasn't seen it. And um, that's a great way. There's a lot of data that gets exchanged on there, but the main benefit of that is really just for, for conversations. And one example with these guys was um, they saw the dietitian, they got their um, body composition done and these two sailors in their 49er class that they sail, which is a kind of boat that they use, um, they need to be 160 kilograms with the two of them. Um, one of them's a bit bigger than the other. And uh, through training, he'd actually end up stacking on a fair bit of muscle. When he'd gone up to 87 kilos, the other bloke was still 80. So now the boat's getting a bit heavier. It's sitting a bit lower in the water. Um, and so through that instantly, I got the information. I knew that I then had to adapt his training for less resistance training, more endurance training. He adjusted his diet just a little bit. Um, and, and he was on board and, and that sort of whole process turned around in about 24 hours. But the athlete understood exactly what they needed to do. The team got the information. And so it was a conversation that allowed us to then make a data-led decision, actually. But, um, you know, the conversations between you and the athlete are, are just as good as, um, as the information that we're sharing around. Yeah, which is cool. I've I always found that getting their headspace correct was that was powerful with with the players. Um, getting them to understand this is how you should be in your head. Um, mm. They were typical golfers. They were good at uh, being self critical of their own performance. Um, mm. So getting them to have that conversation and just having that trigger to start a conversation could help me get their headspace right as well. So yeah. even though. Don't go down that pathway of okay, you, you have to hydrate more. That that could be part of the conversation, but it might just be a question of how are you coping with your golf at the moment, and just Absolutely. getting that conversation started. 
it's really cool. So I think um, getting your players to to keep this sort of information for you as a coach is a great way to 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 kickstart those chats. And I think the thing with, that you've just touched on there is that there's always process and outcome, and it's really easy in golf to focus on the outcome, and the outcomes aren't always that pretty. Um, so if we can shift them back towards the process, well, that's where this stuff lives. It lives in the nitty gritty of the process, and that can often empower them because we can't always uh, control the outcomes, particularly in the sport of golf, but we can we can control the process to a large extent. So that can instantly make them feel better. So it's, it is really quite a healthy shift. We, we don't have that team sport where you can actually have a bad performance personally and still have the team win. So <laughs> that's right. You, um, you have to get them to to have that that process focus. I think it's um it, it it's extremely important. But um mm. some of the things that I brought in with Taiwan as well was them understanding how they should be training as well. So mm. by bringing in those those sheets where they started to understand about hydration and all that kind of stuff, we um we played a tournament in Southeast Asia that was extremely hot. Um, typical Southeast Asia, 30-odd degrees, hot and sticky. Um, and they play the tournament round in the morning and then traditionally they'd be off to the practice area to hit golf balls or putts or chip or hit full shots. And I was like, no, this is not what we're going to do in this tournament. This, is just, this isn't sustainable for, for four or five or six days of this tournament week. So yeah. I'd go and play and then it's back to the hotel. We were staying on course so we didn't have to travel. Jump in the hotel pool. We'd spend a couple of hours in there just chilling out and um, hydrating again, basically. And then we'd go back out and practice if we needed to after it cooled down. But um, mm. I don't think those type of players would have been open to that type of training if we hadn't have introduced some of this stuff earlier on. Yeah, that's right. You've you've really got to um, provide a solid justification for changing a culture. Uh, and, you know, I'm talking about the Asian culture then, but I'm talking about golf culture or just the culture of the squad. Um, so, yeah, having some real information uh, and sort of looking at it with a fresh set of eyes would, would be really quite healthy. And, um, you know, obviously that hardworking culture creates a lot of success, also can create a few problems. And I've had uh, golfers that I've worked with, one in particular that I'm, that I'm thinking of now that um, said to me that one of the reasons he struggled to take half a day off or a day off practice was the guilt. He just felt, he felt guilty when he took time off because you're not technically, potentially, you're not doing everything you can. Now, as we know, you actually are because your freshness is really important and your recovery is really important. But to put a few sort of solid numbers around that, I think that could possibly be a good way to reduce, reduce that feeling of guilt that you get because you're not not out there, you know, doing what, Maybe some people have told you you should be doing, which is practicing every day, perhaps. Um, yeah. yeah. And just slightly off topic, but kind of tied into that, it was um, a story that I've told quite a few times at training schools at, at, at uh, certain situations. But um, when we took the Taiwanese kids over to the States to play some tournaments, um, it was my first opportunity to have them by myself for the first few days of that trip. And I said to my wife who was on that trip with us that I was not going to tell them to go and practice until they came and asked to go and practice. So we, we turned up at the golf course. We had a, we had a few days before the first tournament started, so we had time. Um, essentially sat in the hotel room for three days before they came and asked wow. me to go and practice. So what they so, really wanted to do was relax. 
Well, they were, they were keen to do that, but they're also they were so they've been told what to do for so long. So right. they had zero power over their own training. So I said to Colette that I want these guys to be able to take control of their own training. I want them to set the structure about we're going to practice at this time and this is the time we get up to eat before we go and play the tournament. And yeah, mm. we sat in the hotel sat in the hotel for three days before they came and asked. <laughs> So, and their this first is, words this were is before Netflix. Wow, it was. So it was this was the, the first words out of their heads, uh, out of their mouths was, "Are you angry with us?" Because <laughs> I had, because no, uh, and they said, "Well, how come we, we aren't practicing? Because you haven't asked to go and practice. Oh, wow. do we have to ask?" So, but then from that time onwards, those players set the schedule. They set the set the schedule, but that was um, was was a pretty powerful tool. It's an important change for them, absolutely. Yeah. It was because these these are sixteen, seventeen year old athletes that are going off to either college or turning mm. pro very, very soon, and if they're so used to being being hand fed everything, then um, they certainly needed to to have that kick in the pants to be able to do it themselves. So that yeah. was pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. That was pretty cool. So let's get onto this wearable technology. So this is um, this is the brand new stuff that's floating around these days. And I will clarify that I'm not sponsored by any of these brands that we are going to talk about. But um, you've got one on, so I you're do. wearing the Whoop band at the moment. So talk me through how how this stuff works. I should be getting paid by these guys by now because I just find myself pumping up their tires more and more. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm in the honeymoon phase of my Whoop band. It's uh, still very exciting to me. But look, I'm using it to guide my training, my sleep already. Um, and uh, so, you know, whether it's the, Garm- the Garmin or the Whoop, that they probably one of the better things they do is that they, they have these metrics, that are sort of a combined metric where they'll tell you a percentage of what your sleep is. You know, so last night I managed to get 97% uh, sleep performance which means I slept quite well and I slept for long enough. Um, today I'm 63% recovered, a little bit tired from yesterday's training, uh, where I was 89% yesterday. So there's certain thresholds beyond which I'll sort of go, you know what, I'm actually going to take that on board with what I do today. So if I go below um, 40%, I'll generally only do very light training. If I'm sort of 40 to 60%, I'll probably reduce my training a bit. And if I'm above 60, I'll pretty much do whatever I want to do. Um, and stick, you know, essentially stick to the plan. Um, so uh, the Garmin has something called body battery and they also have a stress score, which basically tells you a percentage again of, of where you're at, you know, from naught to 100. Um, my daughter has got a, a Garmin. She's uh, just turned 12 and she's a keen swimmer. Unfortunately, can't get into the swimming pool <laughs> much lately. So she's going backwards at the moment, but <clears throat> she's she's using that. And um kind of takes me back to, to the days when I was a kid and I was writing all this stuff down in an exercise book that my dad was getting me to do, recording my training, recording how hard it was, uh, recording how I felt and recording my heart rate. Well, this this is effectively doing nearly all of that for me. Um, so, uh, and look, the, the players, uh, I believe the PGA Tour might have done a bit of a deal um, at some point. So they've got a lot of players have got a strap on their wrist at the moment. Um, but look, the players that I know um, are just taking it on board themselves and, and are, are using it. And it's really um, quite effective because, again, like you said, they're self-managing. Um, they're using, they're making data-led decisions on a daily basis in real time. Um, it's just a massive step forward to keeping everyone healthy. So, you know, it's a real plus. 
no, it's, it's it's cool tech, um, and again, it just it, as you said, it just gives that that player the ability to to see for themselves straight away how things impact them. Mm. So if they have a if they have a couple of nights poor sleep, how does how does that impact them when they're actually um, playing? And if they yeah. they'll start they'll start to see those patterns pretty quickly. And once players see patterns, they'll change their They'll, they'll change their, their habits pretty fast as well. Absolutely. And like what, one of the settings on, on this is I can actually set my thresholds to, I think it's to peak, to perform, or to basically just get by. So if, I, if I've got like a really heavy work period coming up or whatever, and, and um, but if I'm traveling for work, whatever, I'm probably going to reduce the threshold and I'm not going to be doing as much training. So it's kind of like, all right, what's your baseline level that you can survive at without making yourself unhealthy? It's got that level there in it. Um, but if I if I was a player um, and I was coming to tournament week, I would definitely set it to peak, and that's going to tell me to get more sleep. It's going to basically set a higher priority on recovery. Um, so there's some interesting little settings in some of these that um, that are adaptable, so that you you know you don't have to. It's certainly not about wrapping yourself up in cotton wool, but it's about knowing what works for you and where your real limits are. And they they might so, be further, they might be harder or easier than you think. Yeah, no, that makes sense. But as a coach, do you see that data as well? Are you keen to see that data, or are you keen to push your athletes down that self sufficiency? So, yeah, I've I've I created my own software, um, very much a competitor to, to this whoop band stuff. <laughs> but I'm just going to run away with my tail between my legs. I needed that between uh, for my PhD actually to record some data, and that allowed me to as to basically have a window onto all the players I worked with anyway. Um, these new uh, apps do have sharing ability, so you, they can create their own service team and share share it with me. And we can I can share mine with them as well um, to potentially lead by example, which is nice and easy when I'm in lockdown. But I think normally I'll probably work too hard, and my numbers will be terrible. So we'll see how that goes. Um, so you can actually um, you can group share, and that's obviously ideal for coaches. So you know if you could if you said to a coach ten or fifteen years ago. You're going to have your athlete provide you with all the data that you ever want to make decisions. They're going to be able to do it in real time and they're going to share it with you every day. You'd go, no, they're not going to do that, are they? You'd put your hand up, wouldn't you? Be wonderful. So that that's where we're at now. And um, I've got to be honest, I haven't been doing that, but that's because half my players can't play at the moment, uh, unfortunately, which is really sad. Um, but I actually do have a few that are. So I, that's sort of my next step is to form those teams within the within the app. Yeah. Again, this 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 coaching technology is just improving all the time. I've I've I, I use Coach App as for my, my my students, and they can send their swings in. Ties in with stats programs. Just having that um, ability to see all your data in that same place and hopefully mm. it keeps going down that path where all this data tends to join in together into one one hub. yeah so so if we're if we're lucky um if we're really fortunate and i think it's going to get easier as the years go by but um our, our favorite apps uh have a handshake agreement and they create an api and an integration for each other and you can pull everything in together um within golf we're still not quite there um because you know, again, we just haven't had that space where everyone wants to have all of these different apps together. But um, we are getting there, I think. Yeah, and I think it'll happen sooner rather than later. I don't think it'll be a real 
a real stretch to start to, to pull these things together. Um, so if you can't afford the technology, if, if you don't have the technology, are, are there some key things that the players out there should be keeping? Yeah, so if we're going to go back to sort of the manual capture model, the sort of free model, if you like, um, RPE is a really good tool. So your rate of perceived exertion, which uh, the old scale used to rate it out of 21, but um, you can easily just rate it out of 10. So if it was a hard session, you might rate it an eight or a nine, maybe a seven. Uh, if it was a moderate session, it might be a five or a six. And if it was a light session, it might be a two or, or a three. The beauty with golf is that you can rate that across the board. So if you're out there whacking driver for an hour, it might be a three or a four out of 10. If you're out there doing short game practice, it might be a one or a two. Walking is considered to be a one out of 10. So we've got to sort of always anchor it to something that's um, uh, universal. So that's what they tend to do. Um, so you can rate, rate it out of 10 and multiply that number by the duration. So if I've spent 50 minutes doing an activity and it's a five out of 10 on a difficulty scale, then it's 250 units. Um, and you can sort of add up your activities in that manner. So that would be one. Um, the next one would be would be hydration. I think you still need to do that. Um, even with the wearable technologies, you need to monitor your hydration and weighing yourself each day is still the best way to do that um, because we might change a little bit here and there with our body weight for other reasons, but really hydration is the, the big one. That can change by two, three kilograms a day potentially or even a kilogram overnight. Um, so that is a good one that you need to, to look after and probably resting heart rate overnight, which you can measure first thing in the morning. You can just take your pulse for 10 seconds, multiply it by six or or whatever, and if that jumps up more than about 10%, then potentially you've got uh, a head cold coming on or, or whatever. Funnily enough, just just on that, the, the Whoop band, they've been using it to try and for early detection of COVID. So, oh, have um, they? Yeah, so they've, they've managed to find that um, through temperature, body temperature and respiration rate, uh, they've been able to detect COVID uh, a couple of days before people display symptoms. So oh, wow. that's just a bit of a, a modern day sort of uh, interesting thing that they managed to jump on board with. But um, yeah, so, so there really are sort of those, those signals, those lead indicators, which if we're constantly responding to those lead indicators of what our body's trying to tell us, we, we will navigate um, our own health and our own performance better than if we just do what we feel like doing. Yeah, it's important for players to understand that it is okay to take a break if you're not feeling 100. percent If you're not, if you if you aren't feeling it, so to speak, if if, you, if you're not out there and at your, your peak um, performance um, mm. as a as a player, whether it's golf or other sports, if you're not feeling it, don't be afraid to take that easy day and do uh, like a shorter training session or do a slightly easier training session. It's um. Mm. It's going to be a, 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 a still a quality training session as opposed to a, a half attempted one if you if you aren't feeling a hundred percent. Yeah, well, um, it's a really interesting point to touch on. Is there is a difference between burnout and overtraining? So overtraining is, is more of a physiological thing, um, not something that is necessarily huge in golf. Being less physiological, um, your endurance athletes experience it quite a lot. Where you know, we deliberately want to push the body and we want to push the body multiple days in a row. But if you do it for too long and your recovery is not sufficient, you can really slide off the cliff and it can be a month or two before you actually feel any better and you lose fitness because of that. So it doesn't work. Overtraining doesn't work. 
Um, functional overreaching, which might be a few days of hard training where you're basically getting really tired, but then you give yourself a recovery. That's necessary for, for elite athletes and you know people who are trying to improve their fitness. Um, mental burnout's a little bit more subtle, and it's something that some of the surveys can pick up on, but it's something that probably these wearables would pick up on to some degree because it's going to measure your, your nervous system's responses. Um, so men, bur, mental burnout is a massive, a massive thing for golfers, whether it's through travel, um, poor results, the, the stress of um, being in different environments all the time, whatever it might be, um, it's, a, it's a really common one. Um, and so I think to avoid it, it's great to have an objective number on a phone that's basically saying to you, take a day off today, have an easy day, it's okay. And again, doing that in a timely manner, not in two weeks time when you're too far down the rabbit hole. Um, so I think it, it's, it's good, particularly for the, the real hard working types that, that feel guilty if you don't put in the effort. Um, I'm one of them for sure. It helps me to go, I'm going to be better taking today off and tomorrow I'm going to make up for it. I'm going to feel really good and I'm going to, you know, train my ass off if that's what I feel like doing. Makes lots of sense. So, mate, really cool conversation today. I enjoyed going through that with you, and I hopefully we can get some good feedback on the on the chat today, and we can make this an occurrence that happens every couple of weeks, and we just chat about general coaching. So, um, to everyone out there listening, I'd love to hear your feedback on social media. So you can find uh, the podcast on Twitter at Coaching Pod. Um, you can also find it on Facebook and Instagram at Coaching Uncovered. So I would love to hear what you think of the different version of the show um, and what type of topics you would like us to to chat about and certainly get involved with the Facebook group. And the, its group's called what, Scott? What's it, what's it uh, called? Golf Performance Science. That's where I put most of my information out. We've got a nice little group of 250-odd people uh, that are interested in uh, golf performance. Um, so if you just put that into Facebook, uh, there is a, a page, a Facebook page, but there's also a group and you can click to join the private group. And um, that's sort of where I put out most of my information. We get some good conversations going there as well. We can share the chat there and have, have some fun. So, yeah, mate, thank you so much for your time today. Certainly appreciate it. And we're going to do this every couple of weeks and um, we'll drop some some extra shows for everybody. Sounds good to me. Thanks, mate. Thank you.